Hello and welcome to Broader View. Broader View is a podcast that explores a fresh, modern approach to current issues around sexual health and lifestyle, told through personal stories and experiences. Knowing what women have gone through and how strong they are to continue um, is really awe-inspiring and also completely infuriating. Abortion is illegal in this country unless the specific conditions of the 67 Act are complied with. One in three women will have an abortion during their lifetime. Hello, my name is Morel Harris and I am an NHS clinical nurse specialist in sexual health and contraception. My passion for this podcast is to raise awareness, remove stigma and create understanding to give you a new perspective on a variety of sometimes controversial subjects. Teenage pregnancy, sexual orientation and gender, topics which are not always commonly talked about. In this episode, we'll be looking at the topical and emotive subject of abortion in the UK. It's 50 years since the Abortion Act came into effect in Great Britain which allowed the ending of pregnancies by registered practitioners under certain conditions, though this didn't include Northern Ireland. Without those certain conditions in place, abortion is a criminal offence. We'll be hearing from policymakers responsible for making laws, medical professionals working in hospitals and clinics, and groups opposed to abortion under any circumstances. We'll also be hearing intimate stories from women who have experienced abortion. I started by visiting the House of Commons to understand more about the current Abortion Act and what measures may be taken in the future to make it fit for the 21st century. So my name is Diana Johnson. I'm the Labour Member of Parliament for Hull North. I've been a Member of Parliament since 2005. The real issue now is around decriminalisation of abortion. So I thought... What I would do is I would present to Parliament why decriminalisation is important and um, there is a way of doing that in Parliament called a 10-minute rule bill and literally you have 10 minutes to stand up and make your case. Someone can oppose that and speak for 10 minutes and then there's a vote. So my bill was very simple. It basically said that the the, uh, Abortion Act 1967 is underpinned by the criminal law and basically says that abortion is illegal in this country unless the specific conditions of the 67 Act are complied with. So um, the the law that the 67 Act refers back to is the 1861 Offences Against the Persons Act, where it says you can go to prison for life if you have an abortion or you help somebody to have an abortion. And then obviously we have the 67 Act, which we need to be clear, doesn't apply in the whole of the UK, applies in England and Wales. So my my 10-minute rule bill was was specifically around England and Wales. Obviously, Scotland's different and Northern Ireland doesn't have the 67 Act. Medical expert Sheila Radhakrishna meets women every day who are seeking abortions. I work as a consultant in community gynaecology. By that, I mean I run a service that looks after termination of pregnancies, for women right up to 15 weeks of gestation and we do both medical as well as surgical terminations. Medical abortions are quite simply done. Uh, You have two lots of tablets that you have to take and that's usually done up to nine weeks or offered up to nine weeks. Surgically we can do them you know with the patients awake 
Uh, and then, of course, there are the surgical procedures where you are asleep and that you could do all the way up to, uh, you know, the uh, age of viability in this country. So there is a legal limit for abortion and you can do it all the way up to 24 weeks. The current law in England and Wales means that the tablets for medical abortions must be given in front of a clinician over two separate appointments. And then the woman will be sent home. Olivia Marshall from British Pregnancy Advisory Service, known as BPAS, explains what this means in practice. Unfortunately, if she has a long journey, that does sometimes mean that she may begin to miscarry on public transport or in the car on her way back home. We would like to see that pill um, prescribed at the clinic, but then for the woman to have the option to take it home in her handbag, to take at home later at a time that suits her and she doesn't need to worry about finding a public bathroom or anything like that. In Scotland, they have recently, the Health Minister Eileen Campbell has recently passed a law to allow Scottish women to put that tablet into their handbag when they're given it at the clinic, take it home and then take it at their leisure later on in that same day or the following day. But unfortunately in England and Wales, that's still not permitted. My understanding is that they will do that for miscarriages, so you can take that medication home with you. That's absolutely right. Um, For an incomplete miscarriage, exactly the same medication is prescribed, and the woman can take it home and take it privately at home at a time that suits her, but not for abortions. Um, What's the argument that has prevented that? Um, It's because of a very very specific stipulation in the 1967 Abortion Act which says that an abortion must be performed on a licensed premises. Now at the time that that was passed it made complete sense because abortions in the 60s were always a surgical procedure and sometimes quite risky. Um, These days it's completely different landscape clinically. Abortion can can be achieved just by taking a simple tablet and it's extremely safe Um, but unfortunately the law hasn't caught up. What do you think will change as a result of it being decriminalised if that process happens? Well, I think, first of all, there's huge stigma around abortion, and I think that's partly because of that overhang of the criminal law. Um, So I think it sends a very clear message out that actually um, Parliament decided a long time ago that abortions... Um, will will take place and should take place safely and legally. I think that what I was told originally by clinicians was that for a new uh, doctor or midwife or nurse coming into this area, the, the threat of having the criminal law and being potentially taken to prison uh, for life is something that puts people off. And they that that's one of the factors that's... Um, producing, I think at the moment, a bit of a crisis in um, recruitment into this area. So it seems to me, first of all, I think it's wrong now for us to say that this is a criminal offence and we should take that out. And it's an 1861 Act, so it's a Victorian Act of Parliament. I think we should take that away. I think it would help with possibly recruitment into this particular area of of medicine. I also think that for women... um, The idea still that the criminal law um, 
is overarching in terms of what women can or cannot do with their bodies, I think most women, and most men actually, will still be very surprised by that. So I think it's the right time to decriminalise. We've got evidence from around the world where this has happened already in Australia. It doesn't mean that you will have no regulation. So decriminalisation does not mean no regulation. I want to see very good, strong regulation in this area because it's um, an issue that people, I think, care very genuinely about. But it needs to be regulation through the healthcare professional bodies rather than through the courts and the criminal justice system. So actually decriminalising abortion would attract more funding, more training, so it's, which would benefit... Um, people accessing the service. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Because so I think that's where the problem is. Okay. Yeah. I think it would be very useful because even if you look at it, uh, amongst the Obzangaini uh, specialists that I know, there are some who'd rather not be involved in abortion. Like it's not for everybody. You won't see trainees wanting to come in and be a part of the abortion service because it's kind of looked down upon. In Northern Ireland, the law is far stricter than the rest of the UK. My name is Dawn McAvoy. I'm one of the co-founders of the Both Lives Matter campaign. So there are three organisations who helped found Both Lives Matter. And in Northern Ireland, that's Life, NI, Care and EA. I am paid by one of the organisations that helped find the campaign. Um, and my time is split between the campaign and other work related to that organisation, so that's Evangelical Alliance. It's often reported um, and it's said that abortion is completely illegal in Northern Ireland. That's not the case. It sits under the Offences Against the Person Act 1861 and um, there's an offence of child destruction dating from 1945. Both of those then mean that abortion is legal in Northern Ireland. There's a defence of abortion where a woman's life um, and health is at risk in a way that is deemed to be um, serious, permanent, um, long term. And uh, that is mental and physical health and life. This means fetal abnormalities where the baby is unlikely to survive and incest or rape are not considered reasons for abortion. It has led to criticism of the UK by the United Nations, which said in a recent report that women's human rights are being violated by restricting access to abortion in Northern Ireland, and that the law as it stands is causing great harm and suffering to women and girls who carry pregnancies full term against their will. Understanding what a woman may go through when she has an abortion has been the focus of an exhibition called my Body, My Life, in London. Dr Leslie Hoggart from the Open University carried out the research that led to the event. This started off many years ago from um, a, a research project where we interviewed young women about their experiences of abortion. One thing that really came out was that a lot of women don't often talk about their abortion. There was a lot of secrecy, there was a lot of shame. A lot of women, we were the only people that they'd spoken to about their abortion. And then the, there was also a huge range of different experiences, different reasons why they became pregnant, different reasons behind their decision-making about why they weren't going to continue with their pregnancy, and then different feelings about their abortion afterwards. And we really wanted to give voice to some of these in a way 
that wasn't just a research report or an academic article that would get stuck on somebody's shelf. The exhibition is the result of a collaboration with a creative team that has already been seen in Edinburgh, Oxford and Belfast. Visitors are able to read women's abortion stories, watch video diaries and see short messages displayed on items of clothing, hum on rails as if in a shop. A difficult time, that's what it was. My ex, my partner then, had used a condom, but I was not on any contraception. When I got to know I was pregnant, I told my partner, who broke up with me, and told my friends and classmates in college, who just judged me. I was alone, and I was scared to tell my parents. I got a medical pill abortion the day I got to know that I'd been admitted into Oxford, which is my dream college. I didn't regret my decision. I chose to pursue studies, and I just wasn't ready to be a mother then. It was my choice. What was pitying, though, was the way that my peers judged me. So the idea is just to normalise, destigmatise, and by hanging it on an item of clothing, it's an everyday thing? Is yes. that the, their yeah. concept behind the messages? Yes. Yeah. So we talked to them about the messages that we wanted, and it was precisely that, that we wanted to normalise. We also wanted to show that there's a great deal of thought that goes into, for most women, you know, it's, 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 it's something that is they may be quite surprised and shocked and um, often stunned to find themselves in that position. And then thinking through what you're going to do, it isn't straightforward. Um, and then obviously women's feelings afterwards are very, very different as well. So yeah, so to just to normalize that process, but also to make people understand the complexity of, of, of what's going on for, for many women too. One of the things a lot of women said was that we had no idea that it was as common as it is um, and they hadn't really much idea and when we said well one in three women will have an abortion during their lifetime. Restricting abortion does stop abortions. It doesn't stop all abortions but there's a significant reduction. So when we launched the campaign in 2017 we launched with a report that showed that uh, in the 50 years since the 67 Act was introduced in GB, over 100,000 lives um, were being lived because they hadn't, women hadn't had the same access to abortion here. So we recognise that some women will travel and have travelled, um, but the fact of having to travel means that uh, women do not make the same choices. So restricting abortion doesn't put women's lives at risk, but it does save unborn lives. Many women from Northern Ireland travel to England to have their abortions, with figures from BPAS suggesting around 28 women a day made that journey between March and May 2018. They must find the money for the journey and often for the cost of the procedure too. I heard from Lisa Hallgarten at Brook. I think it's a really hot potato in Northern Ireland, but increasingly the um, public opinion is becoming more and more pro-choice. As the stories of women who've had to travel are becoming much more public, and that's become a really big part of the, the narrative of people's travel stories. And in fact, part of the exhibition here today is a photographic exhibition by the activist and photographer Emma Campbell from Northern Ireland, oh, wow. where she's taken snapshots of um, people's journeys to come to the mainland to get abortions. Wow. We also, when we make it difficult, we also give them the impression that we are being judgmental, which is not what we want to be. And I think that only goes 
along to increase the guilt that these women feel. They're already feeling awful about this. And then we don't make it easier for them. Dr Sam Rowlands is a UK-based international expert in contraception, abortion and women's reproductive health. He has also been involved in the My Body, My Life event. He says, despite all the difficulties, women know what they want to do. When you look at the evidence, it shows you absolutely clearly that women make their minds up. Women who have pregnancies and they they have some sort of ambivalence about it. Usually the ambivalence doesn't last very long. They make a decision, they talk to other people and they come to their decision. And actually there are quite a few women have been surveyed who they have kind of rehearsed this in their minds. So they thought to themselves, if I got pregnant, what would I do and how would I react? And so when they actually do unfortunately become pregnant when they don't want to, often their decision is fairly rapid. I'm not saying that it's not difficult, but it's actually usually quite clear. And then the last thing you want when somebody's made their mind up is to have all sorts of red tape and questions and compulsory counselling and all this kind of thing, which really is is not necessary and actually um, when you ask women what they feel about that they say it's um, it's completely the wrong approach because basically the woman herself knows her own body and her own feelings and she makes her own mind up and she often asks other people what they think but ultimately it's her decision. I think the kind of women you see I mean, if you look at it from the outside, I think a lot of people think that these are decisions that are made very irresponsibly. Women have not been responsible for their contraception. But having worked in a termination of pregnancy clinic for so many years, I think I've seen women accessing these services for a variety of reasons. So some may have started off with a wanted pregnancy, which then turned out to be you know, not wanted solely because relationships may have failed economic conditions have changed, other problems may have cropped up, which makes it difficult for them to continue with these pregnancies. There are others uh, who have fallen pregnant as a result of sex not being consensual. So there are a variety of reasons why they come here. And what you generally end up seeing are not callous women, women who are making decisions without having thought through. There are some who are tormented by the decisions that they have made. And for that, we make sure that they see a counsellor and, you know, get help from the counsellor for this. There's a really big myth out there that abortion causes infertility. And I think it comes from two places. It comes from a time when people were self-inducing abortions or having backstreet abortions, and they genuinely did result in things like infertility and other long-term gynaecological problems. Of course, now abortion is extremely safe. It's safer than giving birth, and um, there's absolutely no reason someone should experience infertility um, unless something goes wrong. It's a very low-risk procedure in this country. Um, But that myth has sort of been perpetuated deliberately sometimes. And I think there's also a part of it where people think they've been told that abortion is morally wrong, so somehow there must be some form of punishment Some sort of karmic punishment, yeah. While abortions are provided for free in England, Scotland and Wales, 
It wasn't until 2013 that abortion in the Irish Republic was permitted for the first time, but only when the life of the mother is considered at risk. This new abortion law was introduced as a result of the death of Savita Halapanova, who was admitted to a Galway hospital in 2012 while miscarrying. She was refused an abortion. Since then, in 2018, the people have been asked whether they want to make changes to the country's strict abortion laws. Voters were deciding whether to appeal the Eighth Amendment. For one woman, this sparked a social media campaign that just took off like no other. My name is Erin Darcy. I'm a mother, an artist, uh, living in Galway. I've lived here for 12 years and I have three kids and I'm the um, founder and creator of uh, the Facebook page In Her Shoes. I moved here when I was 18 after I finished high school. Um, I, my boyfriend, uh, I had a pen pal online when I was 15 um, and he was uh, 16 here in Ireland. And uh, so we talked back and forth for a few years and I moved over after I finished high school to be here and get married and, and start a family here. Erin is not an Irish citizen, so she couldn't take part in the ballot. But she campaigned yes and hoped to share her beliefs with an undecided voter she met at an information store in her town. I just thought that if he just heard some of these stories from what women and girls are experiencing in his own country, in his own town, that he would want to do something about it and that he would be a yes voter in the end, I believe. Um, And so I just had the idea that when you take a walk in somebody's shoes, that you gain a sense of their story and their unique Uh, experiences um, that you stop judging them and that you start to kind of understand and have empathy for them um, and and devote in a way that's according to to giving them uh, human rights that they deserve. Erin chose to publish real stories on a Facebook page called In Her Shoes. So far we've told probably over a thousand stories. I currently have a backlog of over 500 waiting to go up and I currently have over 200 emails unread that are still waiting to be read and replied to. At the height, I was getting more than 20 stories per day. That was another part of it is that we all have this picture in our head, maybe um, uh, of what a person looks like, of what their life looks like, of who's having a termination, who needs an abortion. And getting these stories has, has really shifted the reality that it's every woman from every background, every race, religion, it doesn't matter where she, you know, it doesn't matter that it's, it's everybody in every community. Um, so the stories are all so unique and, um, they also have common themes throughout them that have brought up a whole other social, social issues like, um, domestic violence, rape, uh, incest, uh, child abuse, things that, uh, are taboo and that we've never talked about in uh, that we don't talk about in most societies um, have been kind of a running theme throughout the stories that I've been receiving. So so while they're all different, they um, all have certain things that kind of carry through. I was 24 at the time, working full time as the main owner in our household, mother of two beautiful children, when my world was torn apart. I was raped by someone I know, someone I worked with. I couldn't cope with it mentally. I went home, showered, hid my bruises and my wounds, me bleeding from my husband. I withdrew into myself and I became a shell. I still went to work day after day. I didn't have a choice. We have a mortgage, bills, 
walking out on a job on what would appear to be a whim wasn't something I had the luxury of doing. I avoided being at home because my husband has known me so long he can almost read my mind. He'd see, he'd see in my eyes, he'd know there was something very wrong. Inside I was dying, slowly and painfully. I was losing weight rapidly and I thought that's why my period hadn't come. I had a pregnancy test left over from when we were trying for my last baby and I took it now and there's no way it could be positive. When the test showed I was pregnant, I fell apart. I had a scream lodged in my throat that had never left. Going abroad wasn't an option and I felt I couldn't tell my husband about it. It'd destroy him. Destroy us, it'd tear our family apart. I couldn't destroy all we had. I was convinced I needed to deal with this on my own as much as I could. I told a friend who happened to be around when I was falling asunder and I contacted the Rape Crisis Centre. My friend told me that they could get me abortion pills. I was terrified. I hope repeal of the eight passes so women like me are not further punished after a horrific experience forced to go through another difficult experience alone. To those who seem to feel we'll all be running out getting ourselves pregnant now that we can just have an abortion, think about what you're saying here. It's very difficult to read. I'm, I'm reading so many stories each day and I'm also responding to those women in a very personal way because I need them to know that, that their story matters, that I care about it, that I care about them. And I want them to be met where they are in their sharing. So if they're in a bad place at the moment, I want them to be met right there with somebody who's caring for them. So it's it's a lot to take on. It's a lot of emotional labor to take on. But it's important um, because nobody else has been meeting their needs in that way. You know, I go, I get into a mode where, I, you know, you kind of put yourself into the process of like, okay, this is what we're doing right now. I'm taking these stories and I'm going to share them. And then, you know, every now and then there's a story that will stop me and make me just feel it just completely stops me in my tracks um there was one story that came out right before the referendum uh, it was a mother who was pregnant with twins and what the she was losing the pregnancy she had an eight-year-old daughter at home and the pregnancy was being lost but there there were still heartbeats um and the hospital was unable to do anything for her um, she was waiting in the hospital for over a week until uh, one of the cords prolapsed um, and the baby pretty much suffocated to death until it could be born, leaving the other baby inside and the placenta from the first baby inside, which was becoming um, necrotic and waiting for sepsis to take over. Uh, so the hospital had to wait for her to become septic and on death's door and... She describes the feeling of, of her lungs filling with fluid and of feeling like she's on death's door, waiting for somebody to rescue her and to be a mother to her eight-year-old daughter at home. You know, just the reality that, that that's any one of us, you know, that that could happen to any one of us. And so I think just knowing that our doctors care about us and that they're still unable and tied and bound to not do anything for us until we are literally being saved from from death. Um, and how fast sepsis takes over somebody's body is is just incredible and and can't really be 
Um, I don't know if many people understand how quickly it will kill somebody. And the idea that somebody could die because they were losing a pregnancy that they wanted is just is just unacceptable to me that somebody had been you know there's so many stories uh there's so many you know from some from something like that of a pregnancy that was wanted and and to be on death's door for that to a 14 year old girl who was uh, raped to a girl who was um raped uh, multiple times by her boyfriend's dad and friend when she was in the gale tucked on 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 her um kind of school holiday stuff you know just there's just so many and they stick with me and those women and girls that have shared with me have stayed with me because knowing what women have gone through and how strong they are to continue um, and knowing what they've put up with um, is really awe-inspiring and also completely infuriating. There are some who look upon abortion and exercise their right not to be involved in it. Yes, so there are a, a whole lot of people who believe that. And clearly, you know, while we don't want to be judgmental, there might be some that might follow that route thinking it's wrong. And those kind of people who are not doing it for religious reasons, I generally tell them, come and drop into the clinic, see the women that you see here, and, you know, try and look at their faces, and then you will know, you know, whether this is a decision that's been taken lightly or not. So we take our lead really from life on that, um, from what they're hearing from women who are facing pregnancy crisis, um, the reasons as to the pregnancy crisis. So there's a, a desire to um, recognise that every woman who faces an unplanned or an unexpected pregnancy or a pregnancy that was planned but then becomes a crisis, um, there are many reasons behind that. So those external circumstances are what need to be um, addressed. So I suppose it's an endless list in some ways. Um, a lot of the focus in Northern Ireland has been on the difficult cases of a, of a fetal um, life-limited diagnosis. And in those situations, particularly, we've been looking at the care that is offered in Northern Ireland, um, where there are gaps in care, where there needs to be better pathways of care personalised to each woman. So talking to women who have received a diagnosis, um, hearing from them how that diagnosis was given and where they felt they could have received better care and then we're advocating for that. There are anti-abortion groups who set up um, what they would call counselling centres, they call them crisis pregnancy centres and they often advertise themselves um, as being a place where a vulnerable young person with an unplanned pregnancy can get support and help but they do have a very fixed agenda which is around deterring or obstructing people from accessing abortion and they'll do that in a sort of variety of ways. They may do it by just giving a huge amount of misinformation, which is very scary, which um, states completely unevidenced risks from abortion. Um, it may be that they talk about their own experience of abortion in a way that's very, very negative, which, which constitutes a really appalling practice in terms of counselling. I'm very respectful that people have different views on abortion, but I'm also very clear that in 1967, Parliament said that abortion should be allowed to take place and was very specific about that. So Parliament has decided, this country has decided that abortion is something that can happen and we want it to be a safe, 
as possible and to obviously fit with the needs of women's uh, healthcare needs now in 2018, which are very different, I think, from 1967. We would like to see um, abortion regulated by the same robust <laughs> regulations which oversee all other medical procedures. We would like the threat of criminal sanctions removed from women and removed from doctors that perform abortions with women's consent. Um, because criminalising women and doctors, it really does introduce a chill factor to abortion and increase stigma in a way that we don't really think is appropriate for the 21st century and certainly doesn't sit in line with public opinion. Um, and as I've said, there would also be tremendous practical improvements in the care that we would be able to provide women with should the law be changed. Abortion is a complex issue, but with statistics showing that one in three women will have an abortion in their lifetime, restricting abortion with the threat of life imprisonment feels like a relic from Victorian times gone by. Decriminalisation would empower women to make safe decisions over their own bodies. Thank you to everyone that took part in this episode of Broader View. And with special thanks to Erin Darcy in her shoes and Dr. Leslie Hoggart with My Body, My Life. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this episode of Broader View, or you simply want to share your story, please contact us on broaderviewpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media at broaderviewpod. You've been listening to Broader View, presented by Morel Harris, written by Morel Harris and Penny Bell, and edited by Miles Myersko Harris. Broader View is a WBBC production. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.